In every coffee shop, library, co-working space, there are ascenders working tirelessly to achieve greatness in their chosen field. Entrepreneurs, authors, musicians, speakers, all soaring towards their definition of success. You haven't seen their names in magazines or history books yet. I'm James Darty, and this is The Ascenders. people who has lived an interesting life for so long they've lost track of truly how interesting it is. Starting homeschooled in a conservative family in Washington and escaping to work in the fishing industry in Alaska and then one of the windiest islands on earth to becoming a flight attendant to the tech industry, all while discovering his identity as part of the LGBTQ plus community and dreaming of building an organization that brings LGBTQ plus artists to small communities around the country to educate young people like he dreamed existed when he was younger. Luke and I met in the third door group, so you'll occasionally hear us talk about that. Here's my talk with Luke. You're from the West Coast, is that correct? Yes, yeah. Uh, Grew up in Northeastern Washington, uh, right on the Canadian border north of, uh, I guess the largest city is Spokane, Washington. Um, Grew up there. Uh, My family moved up from California, as everyone that lives in Washington that isn't a native (laughs) does. Um, Yeah, so grew up just south of the Canadian border. What's there to do in Spokane Uh, when you're a young kid? uh, So I, I I had an unusual childhood. I grew up homeschooled. Um, out in the middle of nowhere. We, we really did not have close neighbors. Uh, I didn't grow up in an area where we had anything close to a neighborhood. We had probably 60 acres of property that was super isolated. I think that both of my, yeah, both of my parents had grown up in LA and I think they both had really uh, crowded childhoods and they just wanted to give me and my siblings some space growing up. So yeah, they moved us out to rural Washington, and I grew up and was homeschooled by my mother. So, yeah. So very nature, isolation. Were you happy with with that? Or, I mean, looking back, did you, have a, did you enjoy being around so much nature, or could you wish there were some more kids around? You know what? I, I really did not appreciate my childhood. I oh, I grew up, um, of course, very isolated, and I my childhood was spent wandering the woods and swimming and biking and doing all of the stuff that now makes me happy as an adult. But I, I tend to think that as kids, we resent whatever we're around, regardless of whether it's good. Like, if your mom makes you eat the healthy cereal versus the uh, sugary cereal, you resent it. So there's really kind of no winning as a parent. I'm not a parent myself, but I think if I were to become one, I would realize everything I introduce into my child's lives will be resented <laughs> during their childhood and later appreciated during their adulthood. So you're saying um, we should reverse it and just introduce all the bad stuff in childhood and then when they grow up, they're <laughs> all the good stuff. They're going to resent <laughs> everything. So I, you know, I think my parents did the very best job that they could. Yeah, <laughs> I, I mean, wouldn't, I wouldn't, it wouldn't change much now. I can't say I had an easy childhood, but I, uh, I wouldn't, I wouldn't change it. I mean, what was your relationship with your parents like? Would you say? 
relationship with my parents growing up was um it's really hard one thing about homeschooling that's difficult is you're being taught by your mom and raised by your mom and I think a lot of I think what I missed out on as a kid was the experience of um, getting to see individual roles. Like I, I, um, yeah, having your mom grade your papers and then also administer chores is a really, <laughs> it's a really yeah. heavy burden for any parent to, to wear. So uh relationship with my mom growing up was, um, you know, I, I grew up a really, not a super happy kid. I, I think I was depressed for a lot of my childhood. Um, and uh, my family just has a long line of mental health issues. And um, yeah, I, I, think it, I think it was the best it could be. But uh, relationship with my mom was fraught. Relationship with my dad was very distant. He tended to tended to work a lot through my growing up years, which um, I'm very appreciative of having a stable financially household growing up. But mm -hmm. there was some distance there that fortunately I've been able to make up for in my adult life. That's good. That's good. What was, uh, what was 10 year old Luke getting into being homeschooled? What did he want to be when he got older? Oh my God. Uh, 10 year old Luke had, uh, also very much like adult Luke, a really broad range of interests. And so, um, I found having a, uh, I've always been kind of a bookworm. I really dove into as much literature as, as I could manage at that age. Um, fortunately, we had an enormous library growing up, and a lot of my homeschooling was very self-administered, so it just involved reading the classics. I think by age 10, I burned through, um, I would imagine, pretty much all of what Dickens had written. Um, definitely a lot of what we consider to be canons in um, classic literature I had consumed at that point. So reading, of course, uh, I've always been a bit of a writer, although I write for an audience of one. I really enjoy my own writing. I have zero plan to release any of my writing to a broader world than myself. Um, lots of, uh, I, I was always a very introverted kid. I really, uh, when, uh, when I had friends over, I of course would hang out with my friends and and play with them and then my mom would notice like they would be outside playing and I would be inside reading a book like <laughs> I've always needed time to recharge even from an <laughs> age I understand that I definitely understand that what uh so when did you when did you say I'm not gonna say break that introvert but I feel like you're a very open and friendly guy definitely now and definitely much more likely to share was there a time when you said when you felt that switch where you were you're more open? You know, I, that's a, that's a tough one. It's been a, it's been a real process of, uh, I think my life cycle has been all about just adventuring. Um, as I'm sure we'll dive into, I've had some insane adventures throughout my life. And now in my uh, late twenties, I'm kind of realizing like I've had all of these insane adventures but at the time, I'm able to appreciate them more because I realized that I was, quote unquote, worthy of those adventures, which is something I did not realize when I was having them. So um, it's, been a, it's been a process. I think that self-esteem is, 
something a lot of people have naturally. It's not something I have naturally, <laughs> something I've had to really grow and invest in. So I think as my professional life has asked for me to uh, interact more with others, I've really come to enjoy it. I've, uh, I've had a really weird career. Uh, my career went fishing industry. Um, I moved out to a barge on the Bering Sea at age 18. Um, uh, moved to Denali National Park in Alaska, worked in resort up in that area. Um, after that, I moved down to Bend, Oregon, uh, did some work in a beer industry, or sorry, a uh, beer startup uh, that kind of was at the intersection of the beer industry and the outdoor industry there. Um, and then I became a flight attendant, did that for wow. a while, and I now work in tech. So throughout the course of my life, throughout the course of my career, I've kind of honed in on becoming uh, better at interacting with people. <laughs> yeah, wow. That is the gamut. I, I definitely want to dive into each section of that. Uh, take, me sure. back, take me back to when the adventures began. You said you started experiencing crazy adventures, right? So are we talking high school yeah. or when the college started? So high school, I graduated from high school. By the time I was 18, I had really started, uh, I had started attending a very small private school. I graduated, I went from being homeschooled to graduating in a class of two. Oh, wow. <laughs> in my very small private high school. Um, and uh, yeah, I grew up in a very small town environment, of course, and uh, by that time, I was living less rurally, but still quite rural. Um, mm. Grew up in a town of around 5,000 people. Um, I, one thing I think helped me get out of my hometown was just being gay. I didn't feel a real fit for myself in a very small, very conservative town. So, um, well, I didn't quite realize that that's going to a force of change for me in my life. I think it really got me out of the town at a very young age. Um, kind of my, my, I guess if I had a mission statement, it would be to stay uncomfortable. I tend to think that we as humans accomplish our best work when we're outside of our comfort zone. And as you hear, my, my whole life has been really about that mission, just staying uncomfortable getting to whether it be the far reaches of the u.s or just my my comfort zone of course so uh yeah age 18 graduated from high school had no idea what the hell i wanted to do with my life wasn't interested in, in getting student loans um, before, we, before we get there i did want to die i want to dive into yeah. what you said though um yeah so being in an isolated conservative home homeschooled first yeah. how did you come about discovering the LGBT community and understanding um, what being gay was, I guess would be a way to say it. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I, I knew from a really young age, um, every now and again, I wonder, it's like, is this something that has always been a part of me? And then I look back and I'm like, Oh my God. Yes. <laughs> like yeah. very, very much always been a strong part of my identity. If I look back to the, uh, the people I identified with, there's a very, I guess, a, a very queer aesthetic running all the way through. Um, so, yeah, I would say I identified that pretty at a pretty young age. I didn't grow up in a household or really community or really um, anything that accepted or affirmed that. 
and um, also just growing up and in, in the time I grew up, I'm, I look now and I'm like, there are so many resources for kids that are coming out and kind of opening up to the broad range of sexuality and br- growing up to like coming up in a time when you don't have to adhere to a norm. Mm-hmm. I mean, that, that differs of course in different parts of the world, but um, I grew up in a time when there where there wasn't really a set path for what I could be mm-hmm. shows that existed when I was really coming to terms with my own sexuality were like the first queer eye, which was like, I get not something that I really relate to just very yeah. like uh, growing up as a, as a more masculine individual in a world where what it meant to be gay looked very different than I was able to identify with not having clear role, role models as to what I could, what I could be or what I could look like. There wasn't a set path at all. And so I think just escaping an environment that, was not at all affirming to any sort of questioning in the area of sexuality was an important part of my upbringing. Mm. Were you able to able to relate that to your family or did they, or did you feel like you had to hide who you really were? You know, I, I have a really loving, really awesome family. Um, like all families, they, uh, they sometimes aren't up to speed with where, uh, where, yeah, my, my family isn't still quite up to speed with that part of me. And I love them very much. They love me very much. Um, but they're, they're not quite there yet to the point where I feel like they can be really affirming to that part of my identity. Um, I still, I think, have as good a relationship as is possible to have. I, I really deeply love them. I want to be for, there for them regardless. I don't, uh, I am really fortunate in that I didn't have to grow up in a household that was, um, I think, I think every, every kid that's a part of the LGBTQ plus community growing up questions whether they'll be thrown out of the house if they own up to it to their parents. Um, and um, I don't think that I would have if I had come out at a young age, but um, I still didn't feel safe or comfortable coming out at a young age. I came out in my, in my early to mid-20s, so I haven't even, in the scope of things, been out for that long. Oh, wow. Um, yeah. So you say you're still, so you're still kind of discovering yourself in a lot of ways since you've since you've come out. You know, I th- I think I've got a strong sense of my own identity, which has made my continuing path a lot easier. Um, I I feel like in a lot of ways I'm waiting for my my friends, my family, my community to catch up with me. <laughs> Sometimes okay. I really I really love them all, and I really think that I want to give them the grace to get there. And if they get there, then great. If they don't ever get there, I still love them. But um, I, I think I've got a strong sense of who I am now and my, my own value now that I didn't have growing up. But it's taken, it's taken a lot of work and a lot of heart, heartbreak to get there. I'm glad you, I'm really happy you found that, uh, just that acceptance. Because I, I mean, I grew up in a small rural town as well. And it's the same kind of thing the, when some of my friends would want to come out to their family but they like they need to wait for them to catch up as well but they have that 
that acceptance of themselves. I think that's so important and beautiful at the same time. Yeah, but, uh, yeah, it really <laughs> takes some work, but yeah, my hope is. Absolutely. So <laughs> yeah. you're going to college, and then this is where uh, is where you escape the small town of your childhood, and now you're introduced to just giant groups of people. So I, I skipped the college route. I, okay. uh, I, I really didn't have a good sense of what I wanted to be, which thank God I did not amass. Um, yeah, I, I'm really glad that I didn't pursue anything at my uh, early college age because I don't think that I would be about it now. I probably would have been like an architect or uh, something that I recognize now is very, uh, <laughs> really not a good fit for my skill set. So yeah, in, in lieu of college, I figured I would just work until I figured out a calling. So my first foray into the, into the working world uh, was moving up to Alaska and working on the Bering Sea. I worked on a fish processing barge. Some friends of friends of friends were doing it and I just wanted anything that would get me out of the small town. So I uh, jumped on the opportunity to move up there. I mean, that's, that's a jump. <laughs> so what's a day like in the, what's a day like there? So the, the fishing community, you'll hear a lot about, yeah, of course, when anyone thinks of fishing in Alaska, they think deadliest catch. They think um, there have been some televised versions and portrayals of what the fishing industry up there is I worked in the much less glamorous side of all of that, which was the processing. Of course, the fine folks uh, on the fishing boats at Deadliest Catch go and catch all of the fish. Um, my role in that was handling them after they are brought to the processor. So I lived on a floating processor, um, went up there with five or six people that I had a vague uh, idea of who they were. I meant to, I originally planned to go up there with a close friend of mine, but he backed out at the last minute. So I just decided to go along with it. Went up there with a bunch of strangers. Um, it was the time of my life. I would say the day to day was you can be working anywhere from, I don't know, depending on what the season is like, you're working 12 to 24 hours. And I think the longest day I ever worked up there was 27 hours. Was this seasonal? Um, or? Yeah, yeah, very seasonal. So my first season up there was a very short season. I think we, uh, it was, uh, a lot of people, of course, hope to go up there and make a lot of money, which you can't really mm-hmm. do in the processing side of it. But uh, I went up there and worked for just a couple of months. And um, we had a lot of time off, which allowed me time to get to know just all of these weird people that uh, get put together on this fishing barge in the middle of the Bering Sea. It was kind, was of, it like kind a of wonderful. Of, kind of like a group of misfits? Yeah, it was a group of really, really strange and wonderful people. You've, you've got, of course, the, uh, the more old school people that have been doing this for years that... Uh, that really look and smell like they've been doing it for years (laughs) and uh, definitely really rough around the edges and they're all wonderful wonderful people of course as you get to know like um you really cannot judge people by their look or smell um (laughs) and uh a lot of a lot of uh people under j1 visas from eastern europe Mm -hmm. um got to know some friends that i still consider to be really close friends 
um, through the G1 visa program. Um, and then, of course, uh, the group of friends of friends of friends that I joined were all just uh, small town guys from like Idaho, from whatever college they were going to do in rural Idaho. They had just decided to go up there, I think, in, in kind of a, a missions format. They really wanted to uh, take Jesus to uh, <laughs> this oh. uh, kind of fishing community. And <laughs> yeah, very, very like pure of heart people, really delightful folks. <laughs> who's the, who's the uh, give us, I guess, the wackiest character, give us the most memorable character? Oh God. Um, <laughs> it's probably hard to choose. It's, it really is hard to choose. Um, there was this guy, his name was Dirty. He had. His name was Dirty? His name was literally Dirty. That was what <laughs> he went by. Um, he had about maybe like one to two teeth in in his mouth. Um, oh my God. Uh, he'd been doing it for a really long time. Um, he later got fired and uh, gave, I, th- I think for drinking on the job. Of course, being on the ocean, you're not allowed to drink or uh, consume any sort of substance. And he was really, really drunk when I heard him give the best speech of uh, th- that I had ever heard at that point, where he just went on for about an hour about like the injustice of um, him being fired for being drunk and went on to just say a lot of stuff that in retrospect, I now realize is really awful. But to me, it just seemed like a really like impassioned speech that uh, the commander of some army might give that of course was delivered by this very, uh, not very toothful person. (laughs) Um, Really interesting guy. (laughs) I want to, I really want to get dirty on the show now. You can track him down. I have this speech transcribed somewhere and it's not something that I would feel very comfortable repeating, but I'll send it to you if you want. (laughs) I mean, please, please. Oh man. So you spent some months on a boat. Um, what was the, what was the next step? So I'm guessing the season ended time to move on. Yeah. Season ended time to move on. Um, through, through the visa program, I met a couple friends who had been working seasonally, uh, some friends from, a small Eastern European country uh, called Moldova uh, that a lot of people haven't heard of, but uh, they make some amazing wine and there's some amazing people. I've never met people from Moldova that aren't phenomenal. So uh, my Moldovan friends told me about some other seasonal work that they had done in Denali National Park. And that was my next seasonal gig. I uh, went and worked in the front office of a resort on the edge of Denali National Park. And yeah, that was, that was really phenomenal. Just being so close to an amazing place that had just some of the best people I've ever met. Uh, the seasonal work community is, is phenomenal. You just meet people that are at crossroads and transitions in their life that you would never imagine. And so you have people that are coming from high power roles in the corporate world and they come to be like a front desk agent for a summer at a resort. So uh, everyone is overqualified for the job they're doing. A lot of people are servers and they've been like, oh, I didn't even know, just, just in roles that are, um, I, I think that's an interesting thing about the restaurant industry is, you, is everyone is so vastly overqualified for their job yeah. everywhere. Everywhere you go, you meet servers and chefs and 
and people that are qualified to do the most insane work. And then, um, yeah, the restaurant world is, um, yeah, it, it's very, it's, it's full of some awesome people. Uh, just eclectic. Yeah, really eclectic. Um, but yeah, I worked, uh, I worked in the front office of a resort up there, met some dear friends that I still call dear friends to this day. Um, kind of got, got lost out in the park <laughs> as much as possible. Um, some context for Denali National Park. I think the, the closest cultural connection a lot of people have for it is um, uh, Chris McCandless, the uh, gentleman who was profiled in Into the Wild, uh, died in a bus just outside of Denali. Denali National Park, I think actually within the park's boundaries. And um, a lot of a lot of kind of lost souls go up to Denali kind of following his footsteps. And um, yeah, so I, I lived very, very close to where Chris McCandless died. Um, I, they just recently pulled the bus that he died in um, out of there. I think they lifted it via, via helicopter. Um, but yeah, no, I remember I, seeing I, that picture. Yeah, yeah, lived very, very close to there and had a lot of friends who went out to the bus. Um, I also really just identified with Chris McCandless and wanting to get away from society. Um, I think that we all, as humans, have a certain amount of escapism in ourselves. And he was kind of the, the person I identified the most as, as an escapist. Um, so I kind of followed his path. So you definitely think, do you think that was kind of a trend? Because it sounds like there's a lot of escape because uh, you go from place to place to place after getting out of your hometown. I think my, I think my first foray into seasonal work was definitely an escape. Um, yeah, I definitely just really wanted out. I really wanted to be able to build my own identity. Um, I really, I, I think more than escapism though, in, in my later, later moves, uh, I think the, my mission of staying uncomfortable really propelled me forward more than running away. I really think that I ran to stuff more than I ran away from stuff later in my life. Oh, I love that. Yeah. So we're, so working at Denali, I'm um, guessing also seasonal and then season mm -hmm. ends. Yes. <laughs> get, season ends. At this point you have a collection of friends from, from two different areas, which is great. A couple yes, of Maldovan yeah, friends. friends. Yeah, friends from all over the world. At this point, I went back to my family's home in northeastern Washington, and um, I really planned to work only seasonally from that point forward. So I took on another contract work in the fishing industry and moved out to an island in the Aleutian Range called Adak Island. Um, it's the westernmost inhabited point in North America. Um, so really kind of a crazy place. It had a huge military presence for a good while, definitely during the Cold War, and eventually became home to just under 6,000 people. So for being, like, imagine a small town, but, like, out in the middle of this crazy island, like, closer to Russia and Japan than it is to uh, the West Coast or the coast wow. of Alaska. So... Uh, one of the windiest places on earth. Um, 
if not the most windy place on earth, maybe there's, maybe there's more. I'm like, you can find great information on it from not me. <laughs> but, <laughs> is this uh, all, is this all word of mouth or is this, uh, is there websites for this? Uh, this is word of mouth uh, in terms of like it being windy or, or being, getting the like, jobs. Oh, getting the jobs. Um, you know, I, I worked for a company called Icicle Seafoods. So this second mm-hmm. contract was also through Icicle Seafoods. Um, they're based out of Seattle, I believe, around a half a mile from where I live currently. So things have really come full circle. <laughs> yeah, wow. Talk about, actually, real quick before we jump into the next one, um, talk about yeah. Luke right before you left for Alaska and Luke when you got back to your hometown after Denali. Totally. Uh, so Luke, pre-Alaska, I think was very... I mean, depression had been really present in my life um, through those years prior to leaving my hometown. And I think I just felt really beaten down. Um, uh, I've always been kind of an awful student. And uh, the the school I went to in those last couple of years was really... um, really not accepting of alternative ideas or mm. free thinkers. And I wasn't even being uh, what I would think of as rebellious, but uh, didn't, didn't feel a real kinship in the people I was spending time with uh, beyond my family. Um, I uh, just very, very downtrodden, very, really kind of pathless. I really didn't see a version. I, I, I don't think that I realized I had control over my own life. Mm-hmm. I think that I thought that it was determined by others and that it was other people's responsibility to figure out a path that worked for me. Um, I don't think I'd really taken my, my path into my hands yet at that point. And I also really just didn't think that I was capable of it. So pre-Alaska Luke, really having a hard time. Post-Alaska Luke, um, I come down from Alaska. And of course, I've worked in the fishing industry and worked insanely long hours. And I've done some incredibly hard stuff that a lot of people aren't able to do. And I think that's really when I felt my self-worth flame kind of lighting up. I really... I started to realize that, hey, I can trust in and rely upon myself. Like, I, I can go to a place that is so unfriendly to the outside world and find my own niche and find my own community and find people that are worth investing in and people that see value in me. Okay. And, um, yeah, I really found myself in Alaska. I definitely found myself in Alaska. So now we're moving to... I'm sorry, what was the name of the island again? Oh, yeah, Adak Island. So, uh, yeah, moved out to Adak Island. um, Had a huge population of people comparatively, around just under 6,000 people prior to the military pulling out. And then when I moved there, it was an abandoned island. There was really less than 200 or so people living there. And I was among the first forces of people going there to start up this uh, fish processing plant out there. So um, I spent my days, of course, working really long hours in the processing plant, in the freezers, 
Um, and then in my off time, which was minimal, I would go and explore all of these abandoned buildings out there. Oh, Just cool. insane homes. The, the, the apartment I lived in, I think there had, it was really more of a duplex. I think I was the, probably the first person to ever live there. It was built completely brand new by the military oh, wow. uh, in the in the late nineties, and yeah, I was the first person to occupy it. <laughs> That's cool. What was that? Oh, I guess I mean the military, but with it's. I'm looking at a map right now. It's like the very bottom, bottom tip of Alaska, like that little yes. that little bit that comes off Alaska, like even the further bottom. So, what was resources like out there? Was it expensive for groceries and? Or was um, so pretty normal? Yeah. Fortunately, being in the fishing industry, um, your pay is not very high, but all of your room and board are totally paid for. So oh, nice. I wasn't having to buy groceries. But if you wanted to go buy, let's say, a case of water, and the case of water that would cost, I don't know, probably 5 to $10 at Costco, just a bunch of bottles of water, cost over $100 out oh. there. um uh yeah alaska airlines i think is the is the only airline only commercial airline to service adak island and very intermittent flights going out there um it's really expensive it's really expensive to get anything out there but of course you have all of the like in terms of buildings like you can buy a home out there for at least when i was there a couple thousand dollars a brand new home (laughs) <laughs> but How did if you, you want to buy a case of water $100. yeah but a case of water is the price of two two hopes how did you um not fall back into the feeling of isolation in a place like that um i think i did feel really lonely i think my previous fishing experience had been with some really close friends and this time around i went knowing no one um it really kind of was like a kid being thrown into the deep end of the pool where of course they can swim, but they don't know it. (laughs) There's just some thrashing around there for a little bit. So just, I experienced a lot of depression and deep loneliness um, coming off of a season of like community and just like meeting lifelong friends in Denali national park. Um, I really had to work to make completely new friends. Um, it really forced me out of my comfort zone in a way that I haven't experienced in a really long time. Um, Mm. But that said, like with anything, like you meet amazing people, if you look for amazing people Absolutely. and I met incredible people out there. What kind of people is there more, were there more dirties out there? There were definitely some, some people on the level of dirty. Um, (laughs) Yeah, definitely, definitely some folks out there like that. Less, less colorful this time around, actually, um, just in terms of uh, just people being weird. <laughs> <laughs> so uh, Adak Island, that season ends. Uh, is this flight attended or was there something in between? No, no, no. There was, there was a lot of, oh my gosh, a lot of stuff in between that. So oh, geez. the season ends and I decided to go back to Denali. Um, okay. I go back to Denali. I've been promoted. I come in at a, at a better role, better pay. But of course, the thing about seasonal work is you go and you make these incredible friends and then a lot of them leave. And so I came back and it was like, it's like summer camp. a place that I found myself, but with different people. And mm. um, 
yeah, I, I really had a lot of mental health issues through my next season back in Denali. But I met some of the best people in the whole world. I met the best friend I have ever had. Her name is Rachel. I met her in Denali. Um, I met, yeah, just just people that I people that I really have a deep respect for. Um, yeah, second season back there, I explored the outdoors a lot less. Um, drank a lot more at this time. I think it was like 20, <laughs> um, but not that it matters in Alaska. I ate a lot of pizza, ate more pizza than any human can ever consume. Um, and then uh, at the end of the season, things had finally started to feel right again. And I'd found a small group of people that I really loved. Uh, my friend, Rachel, um, and then uh, a couple of our other friends, we decided to move to Bend, Oregon. Uh, just kind of temporarily and find like some ski jobs. Mm. And so, yeah, we went straight to Bend, Oregon. After, after that, I did a little road trip getting uh, Rachel's brother, Patrick up to Bend. Uh, we drove from, I met him in Texas and then we drove up to Bend mm, that's a road trip. from there. Yeah. Quite a road trip. Um, and moved into this weird little house on the edge of Bend. And I had never been to Bend before. Mm-hmm. So my first What's, time living in Oregon. So why Bend? I, I, don't, I don't, actually don't know much about Bend. Yeah, I didn't really, I didn't know anything about Bend. It was really chosen by my friends. I just figured, you know what, if these amazing people that I know and love are going there, then I will mm-hmm. enjoy it. I don't feel any personal draw to it. I'm not a, I'm not a ski bum. I'm not a major outdoors enthusiast, which is much of Bend. I, uh, I kind of let my friends pick and just was along for the ride. <laughs> going back to um i mean even just denali or uh, adac how did you deal with the with the depression lows and the and the, the very low lows i mean it sounds like it was it was really rough yeah i i think that by by that point i'd really met friends that were true lifelong friends for me so i relied on those friends even if they weren't there really heavily Mm. Um, just in phone calls or in writing, um, my family of course was really supportive of me during that time. Um, been a big journaler my whole life. I've got some really crazy journals from that whole time. Um, I read them now and it's like total fiction. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. So yeah, lots of, lots of journaling, lots of phone calls, lots of music. Music has always been a huge part of my life. Um, I don't really know how to deal with depression in a way that is effective, but I think it's really just kind of like sitting out a storm for me. Staying mm-hmm. active, of course, is helpful. Um, music and other people. To me, I mean, to me, I mean, I'm not a change professional, but to me, that sounds effective. I mean, you cope with the way you can and make sure you're still breathing the next day, right? Yeah. Yeah. You yeah. just kind of take it day by day. It's about exactly. <laughs> so we're at Bend. You got your new posse. You guys are all living together in a little house. Uh, yes. <laughs> yeah, a little, little house in Bend fitting. Um, let's see, I think there were five or six of us. Um, I, uh, I think I got a job. Yeah, my first job up there was working at the mountain. I was not at all a ski bum. Um, I went from being like assistant manager at a resort and like just kind of more of a plush gig 
to being someone that rang up like nachos in a food court, <laughs> which is cool. A lot of amazing people ring up nachos in the food court, but it just was like such a total shock for me. It's um, like you were talking about overqualified in the restaurant business. Yeah. Yeah. It, it's, it's kind of that. Like I, I haven't, that's the closest I've ever gotten to working in, in food service. And um yeah, it, it, it was it was a real transition for me. I have an insane amount of respect for people that that do that daily. Mm. Um, did that for a little bit. Eventually, just quit. I couldn't do it. Savings started running low, um, and I had an incredibly difficult time finding a job in Bend, Oregon. So I figured, why don't I make my own job? Mm. And um, started going to thrift stores. Started buying up lots of mid-century furniture and lots of clothing items. And I just started selling it all mostly on eBay and kind of made my own job that kept me afloat for a while. Wow. And selling stuff. <laughs> that's, I mean, that is the spirit right there. That is like, that's the way to go. I love that. You do whatever yeah, you can was, to keep going. <laughs> It's yeah, it was stressful work for me. I, I wasn't working that much. I was able to make a living wage off of doing that kind of part time. But knowing that your ability to find stuff that you don't have control over to sell is what helps you eat is really stressful. So I, uh, yeah, I didn't do that for very long. I did that for maybe three or four months, but it worked well when I did it. Okay. So so three or four months of that, and then? Three or four months of that, and then um, everyone else's time in Bend was about to draw to, draw to a close. Um, mm. they were like having, I, were they having trouble getting jobs too? Yeah, everyone had had a hard time getting a job. Um, I, you know, myself among them, and of course, you could just go back to Denali National Park and have an amazing time in the park, so why would you not? Um, I kind of accidentally formed a community in the time that I was there, so... As time went on, I just realized I need to stay. And that's really hard when people that you dearly love that you've moved there with have to leave. So I just made the I made the choice to stay and I moved into a tiny house. It was my first foray into tiny house living. I moved into this little 300 square foot uh, tiny house in downtown Bend, Oregon. That was someone's like mother-in-law apartment. <laughs> Wow. Um, yeah, it, it was pretty fun. Um, my uh, One of my dear friends that had worked there was doing part-time work as a screen printer for this guy and gave me his old job. Uh, little did I know that would turn into my next very much more than full-time job um, and my first startup role. Um, so I started doing screen printing work and that turned into helping start up a company called Drink Tanks in Bend. Um, the uh yeah drink tanks drink tanks yep yeah just drink tanks um so starting out we were it was just the ceo and myself and uh then later our uh engineer who designed and created the project and brought it to life and um yeah, the beer industry at that point, the only, like Hydroflask has a really big presence in Bend, Oregon. And of course, we're at that point really well known for insulated vessels. Um, we as drink tanks created a beer growler that could 
could turn into a mini keg. Um, we launched it through Kickstarter and we're one of the first really successful uh, Kickstarter campaigns in Oregon. Um, and that kind of became a more than full-time gig starting as a very part-time gig. So you got a taste of the startup world. Was that, was that taste enough to get you going? Cause I mean, it sounds like you kept going with the startup kind of gigs. Yeah, I, that was enough to, I, yeah, I worked with drink tanks for, let's see, a little over four years, um, kind of helped them get running, eventually started a field sales program for them and was traveling, living out of a sprinter van full time, just kind of traveling around the, around the U.S., going to different beer and outdoors events. Um, I love sprinter vans. I used to be in a uh, band. Me too. I used to be in a band and that was the dream is to get a sprinter. <laughs> so I, nice. I it really is nice i i mean honestly my sprinter was nicer than my apartment now <laughs> i would do it again um it's an acquired taste but i would do it again where uh so your friends um i don't know if you mentioned before do your friends move back to denali or were they still around yep yeah they moved back to denali and then mm. kind of scattered off to other places after that um kind of left, left bends to me to uh, explore with my new group of friends that I had built there. Um, the drink tanks, yeah. four years. I mean, you put some roots down in uh, Bend, I imagine. Yes, yeah, put major roots down in Bend and then experienced major burnout. <laughs> mm. um, I, I, I think it's something that a lot of startup people experience, but... Um, after several years of just putting a lot of work into the company and helping it grow and helping it become something much bigger, um, I stopped loving my work. I, uh, it started getting to the point where I just, I really needed a break and, um, burnout is a really tough thing to recover from. And so without having a massive savings account, without having, insane resources. I figured, how do I travel the world or even just the U S and get paid for it? And I remembered this, like a friend of my mom's at a barbecue once was like, you should be a flight attendant. (laughs) (laughs) And I, in the throes of burnout was like, wait, should I be a flight attendant? And so I I became a flight attendant. (laughs) Wow, man. That's, I love, I love your, just jump in attitude. I, th- I think that's what I love about his story. It's just, oh, should I be a flight attendant? All right. <laughs> a month later, <laughs> flight attendant out of my I first mean, flight. Yeah, if you hold it up to my my life goal of staying uncomfortable, yeah, very, absolutely. very uncomfortable. So it, it seems, I mean, of course, at the time, it seemed like a really difficult choice, but it, yeah, it very much was um, a choice that felt right. So I decided to be a flight attendant, um, very, very long process of becoming a flight attendant. I've never had so many background checks, um, became a flight attendant and did that for around a year. And where, uh, what was that like? I mean, I imagine you got to see some cool places. Yeah. I, uh, I worked for a regional airline, so traveling mostly around the Northwest Mm-hmm. Um, occasionally up to Alaska and in and around Alaska. Occasionally we, we would have uh, flights out to like the Midwest. Um, you know, it, it really, 
it's one of those things where it sounds really amazing. Um, you think that being a flight attendant means that, I mean, of course, I wasn't super idealistic about it. I knew it was hard work. I don't think I ever realized how hard of work it was until I started doing it, mm -hmm. where you're stuck on small planes for 16 hours in a day, and you're paid for less than eight of those hours. Oh, man. <laughs> I mean, I was paid basically for only when the door shuts. So spending an incredible amount of time commuting to this job, um, traveling in this job, just it's a, I'm, I would have, to, I in general think I'm excellent at customer service. It's a lot of work. Um, people are at their most stressed when they're on a plane often. So yeah, lots and lots of work, but yeah, it, it kind of allowed me to meet a really fantastic community of people. Flight attendants are some of the best people in the whole world, I like to think. Like, if you meet a flight attendant at a bar and you're just, just buy them a drink. <laughs> they have earned it. <laughs> That's great. Um, so what, what made you leave that? I, no, not quite burnt out. I really, I loved it. I loved certain things about it, but it was using a really small amount of my skill set. It was using my customer service skill set and my ability to just stand up for long periods of time. <laughs> so, uh, yeah, I, I found it really uh, difficult to be fulfilled and just financially it was, it was really difficult. So um, it, it actually is what brought me up to Seattle. I uh, met someone on a plane uh, got in a relationship with that person and then decided to move to Seattle to be with them. Um, spoiler, like despite it being potentially the best wedding theme ever, like plane theme, like, Oh, we met on a plane. <laughs> it, it was like also like a plane crashed and burned and <laughs> left me in Seattle, um, uh, kind of, uh, with a job that I wasn't crazy about with, uh, yeah, it, it really made me question why I did any of it. But ultimately, I'm so glad for it. I was able to, with the help of some friends, um, stop sleeping in my car. And um, okay, there's a there's a uh, lot of jumping here. There's a lot of jumping here. We uh, yeah, you met someone on a plane. You started dating. Yeah, yeah. So met, met someone on a plane. Started dating. Moved to Seattle. Um, it ended really terribly. Um, as a flight attendant, the amount of money I made was not anywhere close to a living wage. It was, um, if I was working a part-time job somewhere with no tips, basically. So not enough money to live, to really live on unless I was living with friends or family. So, uh, looked at my car for a bit actually after being a flight attendant, wow. um, or well, well, a flight attendant, um, after post post breakup, um, this, this, this guy I dated kind of uh, got me out. <laughs> we shared an apartment and uh, I was suddenly homeless after, after the breakup. Oh, wow. Um, oh so some, some dear friends were, were really helpful in kind of helping me get back on my feet, just provide a place to stay, um, get back in the game. Uh, I started being a flight attendant again and 
got poached for my current job, actually, kind of out of the blue. I knew I knew I was ready to move on, um, but um, I didn't really know how to go about a job search again after all of the changes. I've had so many jobs and got poached for a tech role that I'm in currently. How'd you get poached? Uh, just through LinkedIn. Oh. Um, I thought it was going to be another, we met on a plane. No, I mean, <laughs> that'll be my next job for sure. <laughs> we met on a plane. <laughs> so tech job, what kind of, uh, what kind of startup? Uh, doing, doing operations work for a company that works in uh, EDI, uh, so data interchange for uh, healthcare companies. Mm, okay. um, yeah, it's it's uh it's something. <laughs> is it is it a livable wage? I mean, I guess. Yes. Yeah. It's okay. a li- it's a livable <laughs> wage. Uh, yeah, for sure. Um, I mean, I do see you're in an apartment, so you're not in your car giving this. So. Yeah, I'm, I'm not down. in my car anymore. <laughs> oh, <laughs> thank man. God. Oh man, that is a that is a journey. Do you do you regret? I I know I have some friends. Um, who feel that they regret not going to college. Is that something you've regretted or are you happy with the journey that you've been on? There's, there's never been a point that I've looked at where I've been like, you know what? I need a degree to proceed. Mm-hmm. Um, some of that could be just that I pursue things so organically. Um, there's nothing really about my life that is super structured or rigid and um, at this point, no, I don't, I don't regret not going to college. I have very, very little debt. Um, I really just have a car payment for a car that costs less than $10,000 and that's about it. Nice. Um, so I'm grateful to be able to live almost debt free. Um, it allows me to live really well on a wage that isn't big. Um, and really I just, learning to me is most valuable and this is to me like i really i really respect anyone's choice to uh pursue higher education um to me learning feels most interesting and most valid when i am pursuing my own curiosity Mm. and um just finding stuff that kind of lights me up i i haven't been able to find that in a more rigid structured learning system I think a lot of people feel that way. It's just they're too scared to admit it or they're too scared to go for it. Yeah, I, I'm, a, I'm also an awful student. And so a lot of people are able to go to school and kind of make it work. Mm-hmm. I, without being super involved in what I would be going to school for, couldn't just take it until I made it. I would absolutely fail. Yeah. <laughs> I'm, I'm not a very good student. Um, I... I make up for it in a lot of other ways, but I don't, I don't do well in school. I'm realizing. So there may be a point when I, when I go back to school and then that I find that as being what I need to complete the puzzle of uh, whatever I do next. But I I haven't quite reached that point yet. Love that. So I wanted to talk about um, one of your dream statements. Uh, We have that list of dream statements in the third door community. And you talk about creating a self-sustaining arts collective run by LGBTQ plus people in the middle of insular conservative communities. And that sounds <laughs> amazing and needed. And I wanted to hear about it. 
Yeah, so that, uh, that's been kind of a long-term dream of mine for a while. It started at a dinner party years ago where the, we went around the table just asking, what would you do if you won the lottery? And that was, that was my answer. Not fully in the, uh, in the sense that it is now, but I really thought about um, what would I need, like what kind of resources could I provide to young Luke? Like what would, what would young Luke need to thrive? Mm-hmm. And um, I think, I, I, I think more rural and more uh, insular communities like Spokane, like close to the area I grew up in don't often have access to the arts. Um, Spokane is very up and coming now, but growing up there, there was not nearly the arts presence that there is now. And I also grew up in the church. I grew up in communities that were all about missionaries, like all about sending, um, sending members of the church off to the far reaches of the world to spread the good word. And I kind of loved the idea of doing the same thing now. <laughs> ah, but like, in the, yeah, yeah. Yeah, kind of, kind of in the opposite sense. I, yeah. I have to think that there are a lot of people that grew up in these communities that did not feel at home in them that have now, of course, moved to a larger city or moved to a more affirming place, but that would love the opportunity to go back and kind of give back um, in terms of arts education, like just some learning to that community and also uh, have the ultimate goal really be impact those communities' ability to nurture um, people from the LGBTQ plus community, mm-hmm. um, have them be a little bit more affirming and less of a dangerous place for members of the community. That's beautiful. What would, what would that look like? Like physically, what would that look like? Physically, I envision, and again, at this point, that really, it really is kind of a, if I win the lottery. Yeah, no, absolutely. Uh, but physically, it would look like a, uh, I've seen some really cool live, work, warehouses in uh, cities like Oakland, where um, there are people living and creating in a warehouse space. Mm-hmm. Um, I, of course, would want to do it a lot safer than the unsanctioned Oakland fire that uh, happened years ago and took down a big arts community and a lot of people died in it. Mm. Um, it's really tragic. But so yeah, I, I envision kind of a live workspace for artists, but also a gallery space, potentially some re- retail space. Um, I definitely see diversified income as being the smart way for something like this to thrive. So um yeah, event space for sure. It definitely needs to be really community oriented. If it's gonna if it's gonna be in the community, it needs to contribute to the community and not just in spreading its own mission, but also in helping other like minded uh, parts of the community to uh, spread their own goals and their own missions. I love that. You know, you say it's like if you win the lottery, but to me, this sounds honestly doable. I mean, there's a lot of people in the community that I imagine would love to rally around this and see it as something they think that young them would have enjoyed. Um, but of course, a lot of work. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. That's, it's yeah, definitely a lot of work. Um, I, I know the fundraising piece a little bit more than I did a few years ago. Um, 
but I also still, I, I don't know that I, yeah, I'm still fitting together the pieces of what it would take for me to be able to invest so much time and money in building that. And I'm not there right now. I don't know what it will take to get there. So I'm still kind of fitting together a lot of those pieces. Um, this this idea as is pre- presented, as you read it, is really, um, it's been in the back of my head kind of as a dream for a long time, but it's only recently come out into the open. And so it's still very Brand much new, finding its legs. Getting its feet, yeah. Like, like I, you were probably one of the first 10 or so people to ever hear about that just wow. by reading it on the spreadsheet. <laughs> <laughs> it's not been something I've shared or talked about or even done any work on yet. But it's one of those re- it's one of those ideas you read and you're like, that's just needed, you know? Um I love it. All right, well, Luke. Well, yeah. Um I mean this was I I didn't know half of the stuff about you. So really, <laughs> so our good friend, uh, our good friend Keyshawn, he introduced me to what's called the greatest gift. Um, he learned it from this group called Exchange, and it's basically to say that the greatest gift he gave me today was the confidence of moving forward and being uncomfortable, because I know that's very tough. So to see someone like you just living and thriving in that space really makes me want to push forward and continue my crazy dreams and crazy things and just your openness <laughs> oh, <laughs> and just your openness was very comforting and i want to thank you for that you can find out more about luke on his instagram page at klzny if you like this please rate and review us on apple podcast it really helps others find us now the greatest gift you gave me today is your time attention and open mind Keep ascending.